Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then I think back to 1918, we had the pandemic. And then we had the Roaring Twenties. And so people, you know, went back to bars and restaurants and speakeasies or whatever they were at the time. Um, so human nature being what it is, you know, we'll, 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 we'll flock together again once this is over. G'day and welcome back to the Equity Investor Journey, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello, and today I'd like to welcome David Bassanese. Hi, David. Hi, good to be with you. Now, David's the chief economist at ETF provider BetaShares. He's responsible for developing economic insights and portfolio construction strategies for advisors and retail clients. You may also remember him from his 10 years as an economic columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Now, we're going to zoom out and look at the macro story. And just to put a timestamp on it, today is Friday, August 14. How are you seeing the post-lockdown economy or the various stages of post-lockdown <laughs> economies that we're going through? Oh, look, we, we're, you know, tentatively, you know, trying to recover from it. Basically, it's a it's being seen as a recession, but it's really a, it's not like the typical recession, which lasts for like things gradually get weaker and weaker and weaker over the course of a year. This is just really a really short, sharp shock for a couple of months. Uh, and we've been trying to recover ever since. Now, we could go back into lockdown and have another shock. But, you know, fingers crossed that, you know, the worst of those lockdowns are behind us. And so it's a, we're on a course to, you know, continued gradual recovery, I think, is, um, is, is, is the outlook. And, you know, fingers crossed, it all obviously depends on the virus. Um, but hopefully if there's a vaccine by, you know, early, mid next year, as most experts sort of suggest we might get, then that will be the, um, obviously, help us put this behind us. So you don't see this shock as being um, fatal to economies? No, not well. Again, like the, the nature of this shock is one where it's been government mandated. I mean, we, we we haven't gone into a contraction because of like inflation getting out of control or, or or a credit bubble, the sort of things that typically cause you know downturns. And that and, and when you get those sort of downturns, policymakers are reticent to provide a lot of stimulus up front because basically the economy needs to slow down, needs to get over the imbalances. Where this time it's basically imposed on us to stop the disease spreading, and so governments have been. Uh, able to provide a lot more stimulus um, up front, you know, to, to help people out uh, through this sort of, um, um, you know, almost like bridging finance in a way. It's like help you out while, we, while we're kind of forcing you to, you know, stay at home and not work and uh, closing down a lot of cafes and restaurants and those sort of things. So um, so it's a different type of shock than, than what we've been used to. It's uh, And which, again, investors and economists like myself are scratching heads trying to... I think we've been initially looked at it through the prism of a, of a recession. 
Um, but as you know, times and if you look at the market response, of course, it's sort of looking at it differently. It's sort of seeing it as a as a um, you know a, sh- a shot, almost a um, like a natural disaster. I mean, some people have likened it to a natural disaster, but unlike one that lasts one day, this has lasted a couple of months. <laughs> We're now picking up the pieces. And so you don't see any negative effects from the amount of debt that's being accrued by governments around the world? Uh, look, you know, it's it's a bit like World War Two. you know, where they build up a huge amount of debt to obviously face the, you know, the war. And no one suggested they, they shouldn't have done that. They needed to do it, obviously, to, um, you know... Um, you know, fight off Nazism and all that sort of stuff. So it's obviously, and the same thing. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, they need to have raised money to to look after people through this downturn. Now, the benefits, I mean, the, the up, they've partly been allowed to do it because interest rates and inflation are just so incredibly low. Um, and as long as interest rates um, and inflation stay low, particularly inflation, because if inflation stays low, interest rates can stay low. Um, the debt is. Is, is serviceable. I mean, because basically the interest rates, and again, governments are borrowing money at fixed rates, uh, fixed for like 20, you know, 10, 20, 30 years now, governments issuing 30-year bonds, uh, at yields of like 1% or so, which is still less than what the economy grows by in a year. So as a, you know, so interest payments as a share of, you know, national income over time should decline. Uh, so in that sense, it is, um, it is sustainable. It's unfortunate we're going to have to, uh, earmark a, 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 a you know a chunk of government rent revenue for the next few years to pay off the debt, um, but you know we faced an emergency and we had to deal with it, and that's you know that's what fiscal policy is for, I guess. So let's have a look at um, retail. Retail's been pretty strong lately. What's been the effect on consumer confidence in Australia? Yeah, well, retailing it's been an interesting one. If you look at consumer confidence, it's obviously taken a big knock. So, you know, the Westpac Melbourne Institute is a measure that comes out on a monthly basis. A few others, but they've all really slumped. Yeah, as as you would see in a typical recession, when the lockdowns happened, you know, a massive slump in confidence. But at the same time, we've had you know major uh, household income supports so if you actually look at the level of household income it actually hasn't gone down so a lot of people have lost their jobs but a lot of people have got wage subsidies through the job uh, keeper program uh, those on unemployment have got a boost through the job seeker program you've had loan repayment deferrals and you've had also uh, people being able to tap into their super you know some people you know for good or bad they have been able to do it and something like 30 billion dollars has been drawn out of the super so so surprisingly, households are flush with cash, and you're seeing that in deposit. You know, banks are like overflowing with deposits because uh, people are parking their money in the banks. They're spending some of it, uh, but some, like for example, if you've got a mortgage, they've put it in the offset account, so they're sort of helping pay off their mortgage effectively. But retail sales, overall re- retail sales, have actually, you know, they did have an initial. It's been quite. They had an initial spike when everyone rushed out and bought toilet paper. Then we had a big slump when everyone was forced to stay home and you know use that toilet paper, and then it's really rebounded in a big way. And, and in fact, the level of sales is you know in fact higher than what we were pre-COVID. And it comes back to this idea we've had a lot of a lot of cash, um, so people have you know drawn down their super. Uh, or car sales, for example, are strong, and you wouldn't think that. And it's because you know some people have taken presumably taken money out of their super and uh, and gone out and bought a car. Uh, consumer durables are really strong so the level of sales is good the composition of sales has shifted so um, obviously things like cafes restaurants hotels uh, have uh, slumped and haven't recovered all that much but consumer you know the Harvey Normans of the world the Bunnings uh, they're doing great business 
So do you see, in terms of uh, retail and hospitality, do you see any um, quick return to normality? Uh, I'd look, if you look at areas like, um, you know, it's really, again, it's contingent on the social distancing easing. And I mean, you know, I think people, once those things ease, people go back into going to cafes and restaurants pretty quickly. So even in Sydney at the moment, obviously we've eased and, you know, I was just at a cafe this morning and things are almost back to normal. You do have to sign pieces of paper to see in case something happens, you know, so there is a little bit of, and the and the um, the service people have uh, masks on. So there's these, these things. So I think, you know, this time next year, again, fingers crossed and there's a vaccine, um, that things will be back to normal again. And, um, I, you know, in the early parts of this, it was interesting. People saying, oh, you know, the world is going to change forever now. We'll never go back to... And then I think back to 19... Again, you know, we only look at the history books. Of course, we went around. But in 1918, we had the pandemic. Uh, and then we had the Roaring Twenties. And so people, you know, went back to bars and restaurants and speakeasies or whatever they were at the time. Um, so human nature being what it is, you know, we'll, 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 we'll flock together again once this is over. We'll be back doing the Charleston before we know it. <laughs> so um, China, China's got um, some sort of recovery in place. Can you talk to us about that? And um, I know a lot of people are a bit sceptical about mm. the figures coming out of China, but how are you seeing the China recovery? Look, I mean, you always got to take the Chinese numbers with a grain of salt, but I mean, we do get our own independent verification of that through things like iron ore um, exports and you know they've remained very very strong so China's still voraciously demanding our iron ore imports um, our, our exports I should say and I mean and again the beauty of China is that it can st- it still has great control over its economy through you know a lot of state-owned enterprises uh, uh, local governments that d- direct a lot of um, local development projects and so the government as it did during the GFC basically flicked the switch to stimulus and um, unleashed a lot of new infrastructure programs, uh, eased credit conditions. And so they've fallen back on... I mean, the good news is they've... Their economy... If if there's one economy in the world that's had a V-shaped recovery, it's China, you know, based on the numbers. Um, and that's been driven by in, industrial production, uh, infrastructure projects, uh, which has been great for iron ore producers. The downside is that, you know, they are falling back on their old ways. You know, it's like top-down, directed heavy industry rather than bottom-up sort of retail services, those sort of things. So they, they have recovered, but not as much. Um, but, you know, again, it just a testament to the fact that the Chinese authorities still have pretty good control over their economy, can pump primer and get, get activity going uh, as need be. And again, of course, I mean, the, the thing about the Chinese, of course, is they're very, very keen on keeping their economy ticking over. It's their one, you know, their one, um, well, it's the thing that... Um, obviously keeps them in power, keeps people happy. Uh, everyone's got jobs and, and incomes, and uh, as long as that's the case, then um, no one's going to worry about anything else. Does the RBA have any arrows left in their quiver in terms of interest rates? And do you think they're going to actually do anything about yeah, that? Yeah, look, again, that's an interesting one. I mean, the RBA likes to talk as if they do have a lot of arrows. A lot of central banks around the world are still talking as if they can provide a lot more stimulus if need be. I mean, in reality, there's not a lot they can do. It's really, at this stage, it's a psychological... Um, you know, psychologically, it's nice to know the bank can do more if need be, and it, and it wants to keep conveying that message. Um, the reality is they've cut rates to basically zero, um, they have bought, and they're basically also capping long-term bond yields, which um, long well basically the interest rate that that governments borrow money at, 
um, by basically promising to buy as many bonds on the market as need be to keep you know interest rates not going up too far. Now that it's not so much to benefit the government, but that indirectly benefits businesses when they go and borrow. So they're keeping you know longer term interest rates um, at low levels. Um, but again, they're at incredibly low levels, so there's not much more they can do on that front. I mean, one thing they can do, I mean, the official cash rate is at 0.25%. I've actually, you know, suggested, you know, maybe a little bit cheekily, but um, they probably could cut the rate a little bit more to 0.15%. Um, and they have actually sort of suggested that's something they could do. And Phil Lowe gave a speech sort of outlining what other governments have done, but it was sort of... I took it as a bit of a signal that you know they they are open to doing that if need be. So, look, if the economy does, um, you know, if the if the recovery, you know, if we get a second wave in Sydney, for example, and we have to go into lockdown, um, the economy is a bit, um, you know, the the re- recovery is sluggish. I can see them, you know, shaving another, you know, ten basis points, fifteen basis points. Again, it's ultimately not going to do much for the economy, but it's just that psychological. Um, you know, expectation effect. I think to 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 tell, you know, to signal to businesses and government uh, and and consumers that they're trying to do something. Yeah, that's it's really to be seen to be <laughs> to doing seen something. to be doing something. That's yeah, amazing, exactly. isn't it? That yeah. that actually has a psychological effect yes. on the economy as well. You, do right. you believe that to, to be the case? Ah, uh, well, you know, you just look at the media frenzy mm. about what RBA does. You know, so you know, it obviously creates a lot of headlines with that to cut the cash rate and um, and there will be a little bit of a pass on. I mean, banks will pass, you know, if they cut the rate from, you know, 0.25 to say 0.15, I mean, there'll be, you know, probably 0.1 shaved off the mortgage rate. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's all very, very marginal at that, at, at that point. But um, look, it's better than, you know, the, other, the alternative is the bank to basically sit on its hands and say, look, the economy is weak, but you know what? There's nothing more we can do. So. <laughs> it's not a great message. <laughs> That's right. Fiscal stimulus has been injecting money into economies around the world. Do you see the possibility of inflation on the horizon and higher interest rates? Yeah, well, that's ultimately the ma- the big risk. I mean, the big risk to both um, you know the equity market and to you know I guess bond markets and, and people investing in fixed income uh, is that interest rates um, if, if that inflation breaks out because if inflation does break out, interest rates will go up and central banks ultimately will need to raise interest rates as well because ultimately central banks are targeting inflation. But I think as we saw going back to the GFC where they did a lot of stimulus as well, not as much, nowhere near as much as they've done now, but there was a lot of talk at the time of this is going to cause inflation to break out. And I remember saying at the time, no, I don't think it's going to happen because I think inflation is low for structural reasons. Uh, It's low because of globalisation, technology disruption, um, all these sort of factors um, and that, I think, is going to remain the case. And so this stimulus, you know, the monetary stimulus, end of the day, it's stimulus into a weak economy. Um, and so that it's as long as that remains the case, it's not really going to be driving inflation. It's not as if they're dropping money from a helicopter and, and people are, you know, all fully employed and then rushing to the shops to bid up the price of, you know, flat screen TVs. Or, it's, not, it's not that sort of situation. So bottom line, that is the single greatest risk. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Risk in terms of financial markets. Um, but I think, again, it's not great news for people that rely on interest income and interest rates. But uh, I think lower for longer interest rates and lower for longer inflation uh, is going to remain a feature over the next few years. Is that feeding into that idea of what is it, uh, Tina? There is no alternative <laughs> and uh, what's supporting markets at the moment? Exactly, and, and that's the issue for... Uh, the, again, there's a good and bad news here in terms of equity investors. I mean, uh, what we're seeing, and one of the reasons the equity market has rebounded so strongly, it's not only because they're looking through... You know, the markets at the moment are trying to look through the earnings weakness and think, you know, things will be better next year. So they've pushed up P ratio. So prices have gone up even though earnings have gone down. So as a result, price to earnings have gone up. So the valuation of the market's gone up. But the other thing driving that is the fact that interest rates are just so incredibly low. In fact, if you look at the valuation of the equity market relative to interest rates, that's actually not that bad. Uh, And so people, you know, sometimes you hear people saying, oh, the the price to earnings ratio of the market is is well above its long run average. That's true, but relative to interest rates, it's not. And 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 again, before the COVID crisis, we were talking about a Tina trade because before the COVID crisis, we did have a situation where interest rates are also very low, not as low as they are today, but still low, because central banks were still trying to get inflation up. The big problem before COVID was inflation for many central banks was seen as too low. And their solution was to keep interest rates very low to try to stimulate growth and, and inflation. But it wasn't causing any inflation. And I, I've been adamant that their policies of low rates is not going to cause inflation to pick up because it's low for structural reasons. What it has done is push up the equity market, of course. So, And I think that is going to be an issue going forward. I think you're going to, we're going to have to get used to you know, valuations or PE ratios higher than we've been used to. In the US, the market is now trading at 23 times earnings, uh, for example, which is um, a level we haven't seen since the dot-com bubble 20 years ago. But relative to interest rates, if you if you look at the earnings yield of the market, you take away the bond yield, it's actually trading well above where it was 20 years ago. Mm. So, so the outright earnings valuation of the market looks expensive, but not when you compare it with interest rates. Now, the bad news of all this is, I mean, if you get an equity market melt-up, is what people are talking about, the sort of Tina trade, basically, if the market revalues itself or re-rates itself to, to be in line with the very low level of interest rates today, PE ratios are going to go higher. And so that means if you're holding equities now and you're enjoying that melt-up, fantastic you're going to get good returns the bad news is that the long-run outlook for equities once it's made that adjustment is then going to be pretty low and what was effectively happened is you know just in basically to my mind central banks have trashed returns from the bond market because they've slashed interest rates so the long-run expected return from fixed income is now very very poor but so for asset markets to realign themselves the long-run outlook for equities also has to be relatively poor 
uh, you know, better than bonds to, to keep that margin, but still has to come down somewhat. And so then we're in that process of basically reducing the long run uh, expected return from equities to realign itself with the lower long run return from bonds. So that's good news in the short run that they get that valuation run up. But, you know, for people entering the market in 10, 5, 10 years, um, unless the interest rate story in a, in a globally changes, then it just, you know, one follows the other that um, the expected return from, from equities is going to have to be reduced. It's, it's interesting that point you make about um, you see that economies, um, the inflation in economies is structurally low because of technology. Is, is that the case? It's just to do with the technology and... Uh, well, globalisation as well. I mean, the fact that, you know, with, with the free trade and, um, you know, people being able to outsource, to, you know, low, you know, manufacturing being outsourced to lower cost countries. And why is that being possible? I mean, there was an interesting book came out the other a few years ago. It's something that, again, economists don't really appreciate. Containerization, for example, the mere fact that people, someone invented a container that could that can securely store, um, you know, um, furniture, food, um, automobile cars and, and transport them around the world in ships. This was something that began in the 50s and 60s and all of a sudden the whole world became globalised. You know, you could, do, you could build something in another country and ship it to your own country a lot more easily than you could before. And that was because of containerization. So it's not just, you know, cutting tariffs and... Um, and those sort of things. It's just been that technological um, innovation of containerization, which allowed globalization to take place. And so that pressure of outsourcing, you know, low cost um, to low cost countries for manufacturing, and now increasingly services too, like China, you know, is like the workshop to the world in terms of manufacturing, and increasingly other areas like Vietnam, you know, Sri Lanka, um, uh, Indonesia. And then uh, countries like India are, are the um, the, ser- the back office of the world, if you like. You know, a lot of services now are being outsourced to India. So that down, I mean, again, the bad news from an, an economic equality point of view, it's it's tough. You know, if you're a lower income worker and and you've relied on pretty you know low skill types of work in a, in a developed country, you're under pressure because that's that's been outsourced. It's improved ec- glo- overall global equality. I was going to make that point. Yes. You, you talk about global inequality within a developed yes. country, but then that's the on tension. a global Yeah, So uh, obviously scale. millions of Chinese people and uh, Indians uh, are a lot better off than they were 10, 20 years ago. So globalisation as, as the... You know, people that promote globalization again. I, I, it's been a great idea, a great, a great thing, and it's lifted many, many people out of poverty and improved uh, equality globally. But within countries, it's in, it's contributed to inequality, and that's been the, the the challenge. And then the other thing, just technology, of course. You know, things like Uber, shopping online, it's just made things a lot more. You know, price price discovery is so much easier. You know, you can go to a shop and. Look at look at an iPad and then go online and see if you can get it cheaper. That sort of pressure. And if you look at businesses around the world too, you know, as much profit these days comes from not necessarily finding new customers to sell things to. It's just finding how to do what you're already doing more cheaply. And that's just a downward pressure on costs. Your job is constructing strategies for portfolios. So let's have a look at some of the key themes in the local market. What mm. are you looking at at the moment? Um, we've got you made a note before. We've got banks, resources, and tech. <laughs> Let's start with banks. Uh, well, you know, banks are, I guess, our modern day, 
you know, utilities. I like people, you know, back for many years, Australian banks were a great growth story because basically credit, you know, household credit was booming. So household debt to income went from about 50% to now 150% over 20 years. So it was a boon for, and, you know, it was a boon for banks, but, you know, ever since now they've become relatively low growth but dependable income streams so you know it's the old um, I liken it to the old I don't know if you heard the term uh, the 363 you know the, the banking of the old days is um, you, you borrow at three you lend at six and you're on the golf course at three you know it's like um, it's not the, the numbers have changed now they're all a bit lower but the same sort of thing banks are now you know relatively uh, boring lenders you know and they, and they basically live off the interest margin of, of that credit but overall credit's growing slowly They'll, I mean so in terms of you know they've been basically a big drag on our market for several years now you know they, they've been a dead weight on the market sort of underperforming uh, other areas of the market have been doing well of course resources on, on and off depending on iron ore prices at the moment they're doing very very well I think iron ore prices will stay pretty high thanks to the Chinese stimulus um, so that's going to be supportive resources. What we're also seeing is that under the hood uh, of the market, you know, the smaller cap stocks. Again, it's a stock. Is Australian market in, a lot, in in many respects is a real stock pickers market uh, because the big, you know, we don't have the big tech giants. Uh, the big giants we do have a pretty, old, you know, slow moving um, traditional old school companies that don't offer a lot of growth. Whereas in the US, the big tech companies offer a lot of growth and um so here you know to beat the market you've you know it is you know for good, if you're an investor that's good news you know you can you can identify individual companies with great stories um but otherwise and for example you know in the smaller cap area um it's actually been outperforming large caps because of uh, obviously the banks being a, a drag um technology in australia also it's a very small part of our market compared to the u.s but of those companies, you know, the, many are doing very, very well. You know, we've got some really great tech companies um, in our market. The only problem is that as a share of the market, they're pretty small. <laughs> <laughs> so with the banks, just getting back to the banks yeah. for a moment, um, a lot of people have, have mm. turned to the banks for an income stream. Mm. Do you see that as still being the case? Yeah, look... It, I think it is. I mean, they're a dividend. I mean, they've cut their dividends a, a little, uh, you know, probably substantially during the, the slowdown at the moment. But um, I think that's, you know, a temporary uh, thing. Um, and going forward, I mean, they're still going to give you relatively dependable, um, you know, longer term di uh, dividends. I mean, ultimately, if you look at our banking sector, it's a, you know, what economists call an oligopoly. It's like big, a few big lumbering giants that dominate the industry. It's been a lot of talk of like fintechs, you know, disrupting them. But ultimately, I just think that their, their brand names are so strong and they're so well entrenched into the psyche of Australians that I just don't see them you know, being challenged really by the fintechs. But their business is going to be pretty slow and, and dependable. You know, as I said, it's like the borrow at, what is it, borrow at two now and lend at four or, or something like that. You know, so it's that interest margin on, on credit, which is a share of GDP, is now relatively slowly growing. So it's, it's a dependable income stream. So it's almost like a utility in a way, you know, the modern day utilities. They give you a dependable long run income stream, but don't expect a lot of capital growth out of them. And you don't see consumer data rights as being disruptive in this space? I mean, this is only just this last month or so that um, the laws have changed in that uh, that area. 
Uh, yeah, we're in the, well, I mean, if you made it easier for people to shop around, I guess. Because um, that's that's the effect of CDR, isn't it? To facilitate the shopping around for better products. Yeah, look, I know I just went through the experience of um, refinancing uh, my uh, some investment property loans. And um, the um, particularly now where they've tightened on the credit conditions, it's like... It's very, very hard to go, you know, jump. You've got to be absolutely persistent and dogmatic to sign all the forms and get all the identification done. Um, they certainly don't make it easy. So the competition within banks may increase somewhat. I mean, don't get me wrong, the competition is already pretty fierce. I mean, there's not a lot of margin in, in, in home lending. Um, it's not as if bank, I don't, people say banks are creaming off a lot of profit. I mean, I don't really think, you know, between them, you only need like two or three companies to be vigorously competing against each other and there's still a lot of competition. Um, so that's true. And inter- if you look at things like net interest margins, they have come down. But CBA still has a big chunk of the home loan market, the top four, you know. So what we're seeing, yes, fintechs are rivaling them. But as a share of the overall market, the big companies are still very dominant. And even some of the smaller companies, you know, like um, Ubank and Whatnot. They're all owned by the big banks anyway. <laughs> they can always take <laughs> them over. To, to, be, to, to be honest, a lot of fintechs, I mean, the exits, I mean, they all talk about challenging the banks. And uh, honestly, a lot, I suspect a lot, the exit strategy for a lot of these is to be bought by banks. <laughs> <laughs> so the successful ones will be, be folded into the banking, uh, the banking uh, arms of the, of the big guys. That's not a bad business plan, really. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to resource companies, mm. um, they've become dividend stocks. Do you see yes. that as continuing as well? Look, at the moment, that, that, that will continue. I mean, obviously, they're flush with cash because of high iron ore prices, you know, strong exports out to China, and also maybe a little bit reticent about how long that will last. So you haven't seen a big boost in investment at the moment. So they're being cautious in, in spending on new expansion plans. Uh, and so as a result, the, the, the income that they've got, they, you know, they're turning around and distributing it as... Um, as dividends, so look, I think it can last for, for for a while and until they, you know, feel that there's another big commodity. What that probably does suggest in the short run, they're a little bit dubious about the the strength of iron ore prices and whether they can stay this high. Um, and as a result, that you know, giving that money back to shareholders at the moment. So, so again, it's a bit almost a little bit like the banks. I mean, their growth outlook at the moment is probably curtailed somewhat, um, but you're getting compensated buy that from uh, from higher income at the moment ultimately they may go you know again if we go into another big commodity cycle and they start um, spending a lot of money on expanding mining capacity maybe out, and they'll probably have to do it increasingly outside of australia and then you know maybe the dividends will come back somewhat david bassanese thank you very much for joining us today great to be with you the company and or guest has contributed to the costs associated with producing this episode of the Equity Investor Journey. Important, please remember these podcasts are produced to provide information and education and they're not designed to provide financial advice. The Australian Shareholders Association does not endorse or favour any specific commercial product or company. Please obtain independent professional advice before investing. We value your feedback and questions. Please contact us at share at asa.asn.au if you have any suggestions for guests or specific questions you'd like answered. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.